Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. All right. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I think so we should weird. address. I think we need to As... address the elephant in the room for the audience right now. Audience, before we start today, Phelan and I are recording in the same room, and we have not done this since 2019. So hold on to your hats. This episode's going to be wild. While we learn to speak to each other again, <laughs> I'm like, why am I so weirded out by talking to you? <laughs> okay, let's start. Let's start. All right. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey, Leah. Hey, Phelan. So today, I wanted to spend some time with one of our favorite people. Michael B. Jordan? Oh, God, I oh wish. Oh, my God, I love him. I Pedro Pascal? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Beyonce? We have not talked about Beyonce in a long time. Acadian icon? Yeah, I mean, well, she's she's like the Beyonce of history. Sing your song just for me, Andrushka. Our show's historian, Andrea Eidinger. Andrea. Okay, nice. Yes. Love this. So, listeners, Andrea is the podcast's whip-smart historical consultant who keeps us in check and makes sure that we don't look like total fools. Yes. Well, she can't always control that, but she really does help us with all the historical facts. Yes, this is true. For listeners, Andrea is Jewish and a historian, and a lot of her work focuses on gender and history. And one topic that she's had a good amount of time looking into centers around Jewish food and history. Leah, do you have any thoughts on Jewish food or Montreal foods? What do you love? Do I have thoughts? I mean, I love Fairmont Bagel in my land. I love Beauty's Luncheonette in uh, Mont Royal, which is amazing, although they're a little bit They're a little bit – they're not into the customer service, which I kind of also love. It's like eat your food and please leave because there's a huge lineup. Obviously, Schwartz's Deli, those smoked meat sandwiches are enormous Mm -hmm. and delicious. Mm -hmm. I mean I could go on and on. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're in luck because we're going to talk about some of those places today. Excellent. um, Because I wanted to look into Jewish history and food focusing on Montreal, one of the oldest Jewish communities in Canada. And, you know, so of course I want to look at food. I mean, I'm excited. I think there's so much to be learned about history and people through their food. And I mean, we've talked a lot about food on this podcast. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it, it can be a doorway into a culture. Last year, we talked about the Donaire and how mm-hmm. that morphed and changed. And this season, we also are looking into the history of the Jamaican patty or just the patty. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm 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 down for this. Right. So before we can get into the foods, um, the iconic restaurants in Montreal and even go on a little shopping trip. Let's learn a bit about Jewish history in Montreal. Okay, this is exciting. So my first question, though, is when did Jewish people start to come to Canada and, and specifically Montreal? 
Well, I've read a few things. Um, There were some Jewish fur traders hanging around, but when it comes to Montreal, the names Samuel Jacobs and Aaron Hart often come up as the first Jews to set up shop in Montreal. They were two soldiers who fought in the British military, um, and in Montreal they were businessmen. The Hart family was instrumental in establishing the first synagogue in Canada. The Shirath Israel Synagogue was established in 1768 in Montreal. Wow, before Canada was Canada. That's earlier than I would have thought. Yeah, totally. But they may not have been the first Jews here. It may have been someone else, a person by the name of Esther Brando or Jacques Lafarge. So this person had two different names? Yes, and this story... It's super wild, so buckle up. Okay. Okay. So now we don't know how Esther or Jacques would have identified gender-wise, if at all. So for today, I'm going to go from the sources that I could find. Okay, so in 1738, Esther Brando, calling themselves Jacques, dresses in male clothing, calls themselves a Catholic, and boards a ship for New France. At the time, women weren't allowed on ships, and Jewish people weren't allowed in New France. Really? Yes. Okay, so it was a French colony, so only Catholics were allowed in. So this was a dangerous decision to make. Esther made it across the ocean, but once there, their identity was discovered, and they were arrested and interrogated. They were given two options, convert to Christianity or be deported. They refused to convert, and they were deported back to France. Wow, so the first Jewish person in Canada sounds pretty badass. (laughs) Totally. And they really seem to frustrate a lot of men in the colony. Leah, can you read the statement from Intendant Gilles Hacquart? He was one of the men responsible for holding Jacques or Esther. She is so flighty that she has been unable to adapt herself, either in Hôpital General or in several other houses. Her conduct has not been precisely bad, but she is so fickle that at different times she has been as much receptive as hostile. I have no alternative but to send her away. She is not our guest, not our guest. Put our service to the test. No women in Quebec. Okay. Okay, that was fantastic. Right? Um, Thank you. I would like to give you um, a Grammy. Thank you. And, and I can Oscar never go to Quebec, but that's fine. Yeah. So apparently, they annoyed the authorities so much that the King of France ponied up the money to pay for Esther or Jacques' deportation out of Montreal and back to France. Wow. And so, what did they do then? Well, that's where the story ends. Oh. They disappear from the historical record. It's the last we hear of them. Oh, damn, that's too bad. I was looking forward to the rest of that. Mm -hmm. Historians, if any of you know what happened to them, please get in contact. I'm dying to know. Yeah. I mean, if there's records. Yeah. And this is a really quick version of the story. The whole thing reads like a big budget spy movie almost. There's a shipwreck, more arrests, and a lot of wandering the French countryside. Oh, I love this. Mm -hmm. So the Esther slash Jacques story ends, at least on paper, in 1739. It wouldn't be until years later, in the 1760s, after Britain took a control of the colony that Jews were allowed in. Right, because French control equals Catholic control in the colony, mm-hmm. so only French Catholics would be allowed in. Yes, and Esther's story made me wonder, you know, why did so many Jewish people settle in Montreal? Up until the 70s, the city had the highest population of Jewish people in Canada. Now Toronto holds that title. I had questions. Here's Andrea. I'm curious, why Montreal? 
Why did so many Jewish folks end up in Montreal? So I think we, when we think about Canada today, we think about like Toronto as being the center. But realistically speaking, when you're talking about like 1700s, 1800s, it's, it's Montreal. Everything goes through Montreal. Montreal is the beating heart of Canada. It's where all of the, the trade and industry is going. It's the center for the fur trade. It's the center for ships, ports, and they're coming in through uh, the St. Lawrence, right? And so like there's um, communities in Trois-Rivières and then Montreal, because that's just the natural entry port into that part of North America. Okay, so that makes sense. So landing along the shores of the St. Lawrence was useful geographically and economically. And surprise, Toronto, you weren't always the center of the universe. (laughs) Careful, Leah. It's true. I still live here, so I should be cautious talking about Toronto, a.k.a. the greatest city in the world. Right. heard it here. Right. So I I had questions for Andrea about Jewish identity in Montreal. Um, You know, is it different from other places? Jewish identity in Montreal is actually one of the probably the most contentious things out there. When a lot of people think about Jews in North America, they think about like Seinfeld or they think about depictions in media. In the U.S., there was just this big, massive influx of people from one place that happened largely at the same time. Canada, you're more so seeing um, waves of immigrants coming from very different backgrounds. So the first wave of people you get are largely British Jews who are what are called Sephardi. So they're originally or their ancestors were originally from Spain, Portugal and the Mediterranean, but were expelled during the Spanish Inquisition. Right. That makes sense. The Jewish people would have to flee the Inquisition. This was when the Spanish crown wanted to consolidate power with the Pope. It was Mm -hmm. a time of deep religious persecution where many non-Catholics were forced to flee. The Inquisition started around the 1400s. It lasted over 300 years and it was extremely violent. Executions and torture. You know, they use all of that to exact confessions from people. Mm -hmm. So that first wave of Jews coming over in substantial numbers, that was in the 1800s. Andrea explains the next wave and why they came to Canada. Then you start to get the influx of some German Jews who are Ashkenazi. So these are people from Eastern Europe, but they have very different religious traditions. And then you get the big wave of Eastern European Jews coming 1880 to about 19. 14, and their sheer numerical dominance changes the culture of Jews in Montreal. So previously, um, it had been um, a very British version of being Jewish. So it was very integrated into the community, very much about like, we're no different. The only thing that's different is our religion. And uh, I don't know how else to describe it, but a very British type of Jewishness, like very particular. Uh, but Eastern European Jews were very different because they came not seeking opportunity necessarily um, as the first British Jews did, but a lot of them came to Canada fleeing violence very specifically. And uh, this was violence in, um, not that British Jews didn't experience violence, but they were fleeing pogroms. They were fleeing state-sponsored violence against Jews in Eastern Europe, uh, largely in the Russian Empire. And um, they were persecuted specifically for being Jewish. So when they came to Canada, they were very invested in maintaining this identity because they had been not only targeted, but had left everything behind because of it. So in 
So these Ashkenazi Jews were fleeing pogroms, pogroms being violent attacks by non-Jews in the Russian Empire. I was curious about where the word came from, and it's a Russian word meaning to wreak havoc, to demolish violently. Yikes. No mincing words there. No. Um, And as you heard Andrea say, these Jewish people really wanted to establish an identity, a community, to firmly have roots in Montreal. It's interesting because I assume most Jewish people came to Canada after the Holocaust. I kind of thought that too, and I think that's a common assumption. There were some who came over from the Holocaust for sure, but there were also some who came over from Hungary in the 50s after a revolution there. Uh, Some Persian Jews from Iran, Iraq, North Africa. Some were expelled from places like Egypt, Morocco, and Algeria in the 80s and into the 90s. This was also when many Ethiopian Jewish folks came over. And now there are some Israeli Jews landing in Montreal. So it sounds like it's a really global affair. Totally. Um, And each group, you know, brought and brings their own distinct culture and foods with them. In a lot of ways, much of what people think of when they think of Jewish Montreal identity comes from the Ashkenazi people. Think about those Jewish foods that are iconic with the city. Matzo ball soup, smoked meat, bagels. Those are very Eastern European Jewish foods. Oh my God, I'm so hungry already. Okay, let's get into this. Let's go with the food. Totally. Okay, my question was, what makes Jewish food Jewish? Generally speaking, Jewish foods or what we call Jewish foods today are um, Jewish adaptations of local dishes from wherever they happen to be. So like my family mostly comes from Russia and Poland and Austria. So um, we have foods that would be like native to that particular area. So like kugel, which is like a noodle casserole, the way that the brisket is done. Uh, But like Jews who come from Hungary, for example, have completely different foods that they would eat. So so sometimes the recipes are adapted so that they're more Jewishy. Right. So people coming from different places would bring their foods. So there's no single definition of what Jewish food is. Andrea might say matzah is a food that most Jews eat. But again, it all depends on where you're coming from geographically and your personal preference and, and your practice. What is matzah? I don't. Well, we're we're going to get into it a bit. Um, you keep promising that. And I, like <laughs> time's ticking. Like, let's get to this. All right. Food all right. Section all right. Um, but before we can talk okay. about the food, there's something that I have to tell you. OK. About Andrea. OK. Our expert. She's got some feelings about Jewish food. I hate Jewish food. Everybody, everybody I talk to, I tell them this and uh, they die, but it's true. And my mother will attest to this. I really just don't like most Jewish foods. Um, but for example, there's um, cheese blintzens are very popular. Again, I'm not a fan, but um, I don't like matzo balls. cooking this brisket. Everybody loves brisket again, except me. Um, I'm, I'm notoriously picky when it comes to latkes. And I do not like my mom's latkes and she will tell you this. Okay, so Andrea hates Jewish food. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not all of it, but most of it. She does like Lodka's, just not her mom's. Oh, she's very brave to go on a podcast and say that. Like, you're never going to hear me say I don't like Heather Bowen's food, okay? (laughs) You hear that, Heather? (laughs) Heather, I love it. I love it all. That is hilarious. That is hilarious. Yeah. You know, so if you visit Montreal and you do what we all do, you Google, you know, 
things to do when visiting Montreal, you will most certainly come across recommendations to get a smoked meat sandwich from Schwartz's, Lester's, or maybe Main Deli, spots renowned for their smoked meat sandwiches. You'll be told to get a bagel from St. Viateur or Fairmont Bagels, or you'll be directed to get a special from Walensky's, all spots in or close to Mile End. Uh, right. I've enjoyed a lot of good food mm-hmm. in my land, I have to say. My favorite place actually is Club Social, which is actually it's not a Jewish place. It's an Italian coffee shop. But I'll allow I it. just have to I just have to say mm-hmm. best cappuccinos in Canada, period. I will take no questions or comments on this. OK. I love that neighborhood. All right. So good. Love it. Yeah. And what I've read is that in many ways, Mile End was viewed as a transitional space for immigrants. It was a place where many landed and struggled to make a living in clothing factories or as grocers, butchers and peddlers. So some wanted to get out of the neighborhood and settle in other parts of the city. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. It feels a bit gentrified now. Um, Is it still like a... Immigrant stronghold? Yes, this is true. Nowadays, Mile End is regarded as a bit hipster-ish, with many Jewish people moving west to places like Cote St. Luke, to Outremont, and really all over the city. But let's stick around Mile End for a bit and talk about more food. I recently went to (laughs) okay (laughs) prepare yourself everyone sit down this is huge yes continue where did you go i recently went to walensky's light lunch a place that i have been dying to go to for a long time you know what truthfully i've seen i've peered into Mm -hmm. that place it's Mm -hmm. always closed when i when i'm there i've never been in but it looks so amazing so tell me what is so special about it Okay, so it's a restaurant that has been in the Mile End neighborhood since 1932. And the interior, like you said, it just looks like it's from another era. The tin ceiling, the bright green paint on the walls, and the old wooden stools at the lunch counter. They're not very comfortable, but they're, you know... They feel just so authentic. And the restaurant, you know, it has so much of this original decor. Oh, yeah. It looks straight out of a movie, honestly. I think the first time I saw it, I thought it was a movie set because so much of Toronto, when you see a place like that, they're actually filming something. Yeah, totally. Walensky's first opened up as a cigar shop in a variety store, or as they are called in Quebec, Depeneurs or Deps. And it morphed over the years. But eventually they got a grill and not long after the Walensky special was born. It was created by late owner Mo Walensky. And what's in the special? Here's Mo's daughter, Sharon Walensky, from a CBC interview a few years back. Uh, Special is uh, grilled salami and bologna on a roll with a bit of mustard. What we do is uh, we stick the meat on the grill and get it nice and hot. And then we um, put the bread on each side so uh, we, and flatten it again. And so it looks, it looks like there's not very much in there, but uh, it's all hiding inside the bread. And uh, that's it. It comes off and it's ready to go to the customer. You can add cheese if you like, but the most important rule is that the sandwich is never cut in half. There's actually a sign that is pretty prominently displayed explaining. When ordering a special, you should know a thing or two. They are always served with mustard. They are never cut in two. Don't ask us why. Just understand that this is nothing new. This is the way that it's been done since 1932. I love it. Since 1932, they are not going to change it. Why Mm -hmm. mess with perfection? I agree. Walensky's is a fast-paced place, and everything on the menu is under five bucks. Um, And they even do old-fashioned sodas at the counter. 
It's so unheard of. I love that their light lunch is basically a fried meat sandwich yes. with a soda. Well, it's light, light on your pocketbook, at least. <laughs> um, <laughs> just down the street from Walensky's, you have Fairmont Bagel, another iconic Jewish institution. It opened in 1919. It's the oldest bagel shop in the city. Just a few blocks away, you also have another iconic bagel spot, St. Viatura, which opened in 1957. I didn't know Fairmont Bagel was that old. That's fascinating. So I've, I've often wondered, is there any kind of bagel rivalry between the shops, between New York and Montreal? Like, oh, there's God. a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> bagel conversation. Okay, I mean, in Montreal, I think there is, but not officially, at least okay. that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, but people are very opinionated about bagels. And, you know, the fight really gets going when you toss the New York bagel into the mix. And, and what exactly is the difference between Montreal and New York bagels? Okay, so Montreal bagels are smaller, they're thinner and sweeter, a little denser. And bagels bring out some pretty intense feelings in many folks. Um, here's Andrea. The New York bagel will never win, ever. It's just, don't waste your time. I, I don't like wasting my time with New York City bagels. Oh. Apologies to New York City. A strong stance. Very, Very much strong. so, yeah. Um, but I had to break some news to Andrea once we got on the topic of bagels. Um, and have you heard that Liberté cream cheese is no longer available? What? <laughs> I'm sorry to drop this on you. I just, when I was doing my research, I came across an article saying that they discontinued it. Really? I know. There's going to be some people sitting Shiva for that one. <laughs> oh, she sounds distressed. I was too when I found out. Liberté was the best cream cheese, I'll say it. Oh, I had no idea that was such a big thing. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had it. Oh, it's great. I mean, it was. Okay. R.I.P. R.I.P. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's one more food item that I want to discuss. Smoked meat. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love smoked meat. When I moved to Montreal, I I put on, put on some pounds due to smoked meat. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this. It's called the Montreal Five. It's how everyone <laughs> survives the winters there. Are you kidding me? It's cold. You, you, it's I very think, cold. I think, I think you're right. So just down the street from Mile End on St. Laurent, and a street nicknamed the Main, you will find a couple of the city's iconic smoked meat spots, Schwartz's and Main Deli. Here's Bill Brownstein, who wrote a book on Schwartz's Deli, describing the iconic cut of meat. First of all, the smoked meat comes from the brisket, which is one of the cheaper parts of the cow. Uh, the meat, that is. And it is uh, firstly put into all sorts of spices where it marinates for about 10 to 14 days. And then it goes into a smokehouse for about a day and a half. And then it gets steamed for a few hours after that. And what you have is this, like, massive congealed fat and spice and meat that, mm. although it sounds not terribly <laughs> healthy, Healthy. Uh, although I got to tell you, there was a guy who I wrote about in the book who says he lost 90 pounds on a Schwartz Atkins diet. <laughs> yeah, I read that. No carbs, but you know, yeah. the cholesterol. Well, maybe that's something and else. My doubts. Much like Walensky's, which won't cut your sandwich in half, Schwartz's and other smoked meat spots have their own rules. First of all, I mean, if you go to Schwartz's, you can't order it lean because I mean, what's the point? You've got to order. <laughs> Did it I make lean. it lean? Well, they don't like to do that, and I mean, I don't even the, the cut of brisket from from where it comes. I mean, is fairly marble to begin with. I mean, there are some cuts that are leaner than the others, but the point is, is that you you want to have it uh, medium, 
preferably medium fat. You don't. You you have to have it with basic French's mustard. You know, no fancy Dijon's here. You have to have it on rye bread. I mean, those are the do's. Uh, anybody comes in and who's asking for it on white with mayo, I mean, is immediately shown the door. You, you <laughs> I just love the specificity mm-hmm. of. We have the way that we do things. If you like this restaurant, we are not changing it mm-hmm. for you. Like, I kind of love the time before customer service was a thing. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, you're going to deal with whatever we're giving you. Yeah. And people go for it. I love it. I yes, love it so much. I know. Me too. Me too. I wondered about smoked meat, like where it comes from and why. Here's Ben Kravitz, whose father opened Ben's Delicatessen in 1951. My late father opened up a store on St. Lawrence in Duluth, and he brought over the ID that he had from the old country. He came here as a young man, but he, li- he lived on a farm in Lithuania. And there, through necessities and different ways of life, they learned how to preserve and save merchandise that should keep longer because they could ill afford having anything lost. They would take the meat, uh, put heavy salt and season it very highly so that they would preserve, kill all the, dry up all the blood in the meat. And in this manner, they were able to preserve meat longer. Then in the idea of refrigeration, uh, wrap it in cloth and bury it in the ground, which was always cold, cooler than any part of the uh, top part of the soil. So we would keep it in this way. Then when the meat was to be used, the different portions that they want to use, they would take it out bring it into their homes and put it down the chimney. They didn't have any facilities for cooking in this manner. So what they would do is they'd hang the meat down the chimney and at the same time they would heat the house and they would boil water and do all the accessories they would have to make to keep going for the day. But the smoke that rose up in the chimney would smoke the meat and the spices that were in there would give it this beautiful taste. Ben's Delicatessen is gone now, closing back in 2006. But I really loved that story. You know, it's cool to hear about how smoked meat came to be and why. Oh, yeah, it's fascinating. All of the best foods seem to come from, you know, just making Mm -hmm. do and creating dishes out of a cut of meat or foods that, you know, were considered less than. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it seems like smoked meat is no different. I would have never Mm -hmm. thought that's how it was made. Totally. And Andrea's work, a lot of it, is centered around two cookbooks, A Treasure for My Daughter and Second Helpings, Please, which actually was going to be the title for my autobiography until <laughs> I read this. And Damn it. It would have been a good one. <laughs> so I wanted to ask Andrea a bit about these books, why she finds them so interesting. We started by talking about the OG cookbook, A Treasure for My Daughter, which was first published back in the 50s. Um, so this is my copy here. Uh, it was given to me by my mom uh, when I moved out for the first time. Uh, and I also have my grandmother's copy. So this is actually original. My copy, I think, is the 13th printing. This book has become an iconic book in Montreal. Many Jewish homes will have it. Very few people actually use it to cook. Um, but it's become emblematic of Jewish Montreal. Uh, a cookbook that no one uses to cook with. It sounds like every cookbook in my house, actually. (laughs) Mine, too. I just look at the pictures. (laughs) Um, I asked Andrea what makes this book so special. 
So this was a cookbook that was originally published in 1950, and it's a collection of recipes by a, um, a philanthropic uh, group. So it's a chapter of Hadassah, and um, they put together this this book originally as a way of teaching younger generations the proper way to be a Jewish woman. Can you tell me a little bit about the layout of the book? It's a manual. Half of the content are, are recipes. The other half is a guide on how to be a good Jewish woman. So it's detailed descriptions of various holidays and rituals um, as and the proper way to celebrate it, including like down to your, like how you decorate your house. And um, the recipes are, are pretty standard recipe format, but the, the, the manual part is written in a conversation between a mother and a daughter. The daughter's name is Hadassah. And so the conversation is about preparing Hadassah for her upcoming marriage and everything that she needs to know before she gets married in terms of like what kinds of foods to make, how to prepare the table, all of those different kinds of things. And it's classic 1950s. It's camp now, but it wasn't camp at the time. But it is it's hilarious, really, if you read it. Okay, so it's part manual and part cookbook. Interesting. Yeah. Andrea actually interviewed someone who is pretty close to the author of the book. When we in, when I interviewed the the daughter of the woman who organized the book, she said that they originally created it because they found that younger uh, Jewish women didn't learn as much about the traditions, or they weren't retaining it somehow. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about breaks in in knowledge transmission between generations, probably disrupted through the immigration process. So the idea with creating this book was to provide that information for future generations as a way of preserving the culture. But it ended up preserving a very distinct type of culture um, that has now become representative of Jewish culture in Montreal. Second Helpings, Please by Noreen Gillitz was published in the 60s, and it isn't specifically a Jewish cookbook per se, but in the back of the book, there is a section called Jewish Festivals. Each chapter of the book is also introduced with a poem. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, here's Andrea reading one. Our holidays come throughout the year, each with its own tradition. The food we serve is plentiful, no lack of good nutrition. We always say there's not enough, and so we cook some more. I'll eat with gusto and delight and then roll out the door. The book was updated in a later edition with a section called One Helping, Please. Okay. <laughs> and what is that um, about? Well, I think you'll get an idea once you hear the poem that opens that part of the book. My chubby friend, your dreams come true. We've added this section just for you. If size 11 has been your desire, cut out the cheating. Hubby sure will admire. Our most thoughtful editor, what has she done? She's worked day and night just to please everyone. Since it's weight you're most anxious to lose, Make the following recipes. There are plenty to choose. Oh, my God. Well, you know I'm against book burning and censorship, but perhaps a poem burning or at least a section of a cookbook burning. That's terrible. Women of the time. Oh, God. To be a woman of that time. And now. Um, Yes. (laughs) Yes. So this section is dedicated to the waistline conscious, but... Now, after reading and researching, I wanted more. I wanted to learn about Jewish food by eating it. So I met up with Andrea, and we went out on a bit of a tour around Montreal. Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points in miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. 
I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Andrea, where are we going? We're going grocery shopping. (laughs) Yeah, so Andrea took me shopping. Okay, for just her weekly groceries, or is this... Um, no, this this was for me to eat. She wanted me to get first-hand experience of shopping like many Jewish people do in Montreal. If you're talking about like re- where regular Jews eat, where it's regular food, this is where we go. The Jewish stuff is over here. So here's challahs, fresh-baked challahs. And there's one long gefilte fish. And there will also be two dairy... Uh, aisles. One is kosher, one is not. And the same for meat. Many Jews keep kosher, and what that means very briefly is that some animals are off the table, quite literally. The animals you do consume need to be slaughtered in a specific way, and you can't combine meat and dairy. People's reasoning for keeping a kosher diet can range. Some are strictly observant, some only on holidays. It is very much a personal choice. Okay, so that means that the other very iconic Montreal food, poutine, would be off the table if one was to have a kosher diet? Yes. Um, poutine. Uh, I can't, I can't, I, know, I can't okay. do it. I, okay. I'm so English. I'm oh, so sorry. It's fine. I'm sorry, everyone. Oh, it's, it's fine. Okay. But again, the store that we are in, it had a uh, it had a kosher aisle and a non-kosher aisle. Some kosher foods have a seal on them. Other kosher products have a symbol. Some of the items in the store were a little less traditional, though. So there's pizza knish, there's regular... There's pizza knish? Yeah. I didn't know that there was there's, such a thing. There's matzah pizza. Well, who doesn't love pizza? True. Jews adapt and create new traditions, and this includes food traditions. Andrea and I were shopping in the lead-up to Passover, a time steeped in traditions. So in the simplest terms, Passover being the commemoration of the Hebrew liberation from slavery. Yes. Andrea says that it's about remembrance and celebration. Passover takes place over seven days and eight nights, and matzah is an important food item during that time. This is because when Jews fled ancient Egypt and slavery, they didn't have time to allow their bread dough to rise, and so they took it and baked it as it was. In honor of this, many Jews who observe Passover don't eat things like breads and cookies and cakes, foods that rise. And when it comes to matzah, spoiler alert, Andrea's not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) We got the right person for this job, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Although she she did say that it's pretty good if you're nauseous. Um, (laughs) Mm. uh, So in the grocery store, there was this big Passover section, um, and it was just matzah all over. And, you know, I was surprised to learn some controversy surrounding matzah and language in Quebec. There's a very particular regulation in Canada, in Quebec in particular, that only allows the sale of this product for a certain number of weeks leading up to Passover and afterwards, because these are only manufactured in the United States. And there's no French on the packaging. So they have a special permission to import just for this holiday. And there was a whole big kerfuffle in the news in the 90s, because before that there was a gentleman's agreement that you could bring this in. 
but the government cracked down on it one year and they actually raided grocery stores. It's called Matzagate. <laughs> I'm not even joking. And it was like this Matzagate. Mm-hmm. So because the labels were in English and there was no French labeling, they were deemed contraband. Yes, it's illegal the rest of the year. So what happened? I mean, you were standing essentially in the matzah aisle of the grocery store, so clearly that's not the case anymore. Yes, a compromise was reached, one that not everyone was totally happy with, but a compromise nonetheless. Imported products with non-French packaging, you know, they're now allowed in the province 40 days leading up to Passover and 20 days after Passover. And these types of language laws have impacted the Jewish population of Montreal. Remember, how earlier I said Montreal had the highest population of Jews, um, but now it's Toronto? Mm-hmm. Well, many have argued that this has to do with Quebec's strict language laws. Because in the 70s, when these laws came into place, about 20,000 Jews left the city. This has been called the Exodus. Whoa. Okay. Well, this language stuff is pretty contentious in Quebec all the time. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should... Uh skip over this part um, and head yeah, on to the next. Let's stay back. Let's, we, let's we'd be talking about it forever. Yes, okay. Yes. Um, but our day wasn't over yet. Um, now I wanted to try some of this food. Drop off Fallon on the right. Fallon. <laughs> I'm so used to being called Fallon that when the robots take over, I will be Fallon forever. <laughs> Hi, I'm Fallon. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, well, I hope you're hungry. Um, <laughs> that is Andrea's mom, Susan. You'll also hear a bit from her dad, Gordon. Um, and as I started to unpack the groceries, Susan noticed the matzah we picked up. There's a standard joke mm-hmm. that when you buy matzah for Passover, because yeah. we have to eat this for eight days, yeah. you buy jar of prunes to go with it. Right, that there. clogs you up. Boy. Yeah. If you don't buy the prunes, <laughs> you're in trouble. We sat down to try some of what we picked up at the store, and I gotta say, you know, being in the family kitchen is a pretty special place in anyone's house. You know, that's where you really feel like you get to know people. Okay, let me do it. That's why I don't like people in my kitchen. Goodbye. Jewish mothers are control freaks, which is why I never learned to cook. Your sister cooks. Mother. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> I love, I love Susan it. Susan is it. not, not letting anything go here. No, no. So for the most part, it was me eating, you know, trying a lot of food for the first time. First it up, works. though, was one of my favorites, matzo ball soup. Chicken soup. <laughs> it's got way more flavor than, I'm, than the ones I've had out like downtown at Dunn's. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Like, the, the, but this is like, this is the stuff that the regular people eat because it's actually good. This yeah. is like, no, but that's made with a whole chicken. Yeah. The whole thing goes in, turnip, parsnip, carrot, parsley, dill, uh, onions. It's made with a lot of the vegetables. So you're getting the nutrients from the vegetables in the soup, even mm-hmm. though we don't keep the vegetables. So matzo ball soup is also known as Jewish penicillin. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. The next food was gefilte fish. What exactly <laughs> is gefilte fish? I've heard I've heard mm-hmm. it so many times, I but know. I actually don't know what it is. Okay, so 
It's fish that has been deboned, usually a fish like a carp, a mullet, or a pike, a whitefish. And then it's ground up and mixed with filler, like breadcrumbs, eggs, or vegetable scraps. Then it's baked or poached. The word gefilte comes from the Yiddish word meaning stuffed fish, because traditionally the mixture would have been stuffed back in the fish skin and then cooked inside of it. So the Yiddish language was used by Jews and has been for the last thousands of years. Prior to World War II, it was the way many Jews communicated. Okay. The gefilte fish I ate was with horseradish. With that. All right, so this this is the gefilte fish. Gefilte fish with the, with the horseradish. All right. Oops. What's the verdict? It's almost like... <laughs> A pate. Yeah, like, that's what it reminds of, me of. But it's sweet. Yeah, there's a sweetness to it, which is why I see you would want, like, the spice to... Yeah. Well, yeah. You want some? Sure. You sound uncertain here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... So you didn't like it. You didn't it, like it. It was interesting, but things were really just getting started. I tried challah. I had a bagel. And then I tried pickled herring, one of Andrea's dad's I, favorites. Like Do you want to attempt this or not? I mean, you really don't. My have dad to. likes it. Yeah, it's pickled herring. Maybe like a small piece? <laughs> You're very brave. You're very brave. I don't, Am I? I don't oh, need no. it. I don't need it. Give it a shot. You can smell it from here. Can you? I'll. <laughs> Yep, that's good. <laughs> you don't have to eat it. You it's... don't even have to eat the whole piece. Then. No judgment. Okay, pickled herring. <laughs> it's like, um, it's an acquired taste. It's really pickly. Yeah. <laughs> so after the herring, I had a chocolate rugula. Oh, what a nice pairing. Well, that was the problem. <laughs> um, so the name rugula comes from the Yiddish word that means little twists. The classic varieties are cinnamon or chocolate, but it can also be found in poppy seed, raisin, apricot, or raspberry. I read that they likely come from the Austro-Hungarian treat, the kipfel. But so many European places, you know, they all have crescent-shaped pastries, so the roots are a little tricky to lock down. Right, like croissants. Yes, exactly. So after eating all this food, I was about ready to be rolled out the door. It 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 was a lot. <laughs> like I knew I shouldn't have had brunch at noon. <laughs> well, you won't need supper and probably not breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> Susan could sympathize. Okay. The worst, the worst holiday, or the worst meal, is breaking the fast at Yom Kippur. The worst from when I was a kid because we would go to my grandmother's and the tradition was you have to eat three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, one after the other. And not just like a small breakfast, a small lunch. And it was, so we used to go, we used to eat breakfast. Then we would go out and wander around and whatever. We, then we came back, we ate lunch mm -hmm. uh, by dinner. Every, all the men were sitting there with their pants wide open because there was no way that they could get any more food in. Yeah. But it was three... I just feel full just listening to this. Mm -hmm. I haven't mm -hmm. even eaten anything. As I left Susan and Gordon's place, I thought of something I came across in my research, a popular Jewish sentiment. I asked Andrea about it. It's like, um, they tried to kill us, let's eat. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Did I think you? I told you that, like... 
all Jewish holidays, with the exception of, I think, New Year's and Yom Kippur, is they tried to exterminate us. They mostly failed. Woohoo, let's eat. <laughs> you know, a feast is a simple and beautiful middle finger, you know? <laughs> I love a celebration of survival. I love that. Oh, me too. Working on this episode, I thought a lot about food and history and how those things are tied together and how sometimes we don't put them together. I really like the way that Andrea talked about it. But like this history is often invisible when it comes to larger narratives around history, right? Like we don't often think about the everyday things like, you know, cooking dinner, setting the table. These are things that don't make the history books, generally speaking. But when you talk to people, this is the history that that they remember. And it's the history that ties them to their ancestors and their families. Like, I never, well, I met my great-grandparents when I was teeny meeny, but like, I know them through their recipes. And these recipes connect me not only to them, but to their ancestors, all the way back for generations. So I might not ever meet them, but they have influenced my life in a way that is so profound. Um, and so even though these these stories and these people, which were often women, don't make the history books, in many ways, they are some of the most fundamentally important parts of our histories. Um, and they connect us, not just back to our ancestors, but they also connect the past, present, and the future all together in this beautiful continuity that lives on. Um, and I see that also in my nieces and, and nephew, right? Like we have family dinners and I see them learning these recipes and um, learning to say uh, how to celebrate particular holidays. And, you know, my, my parents won't be here forever, but I know that those kids will have those memories and have that attachment. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Like I said, it's pretty amazing. Sing your song just for me, Andrushka. Sing it now just for me alone. You belong The Secret Life of Canada is written and hosted by me, Phelan Johnson. And me, Leah Simone Bowen. Eunice Kim is the producer and sound designed by Graham McDonald. Script editing is by Yvette Nolan with research assistance by Andrea Eidinger and Kate Seaman from CBC Archives. Roshni Nair is our digital producer and the executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. Our logo is by Bata Wogan Illustration and Design. You can find us on socials, and our email is secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us wherever you listen. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.